Kevin, I can I can only think you would give us a great perspective uh, what it was like for you. The Olympics are going to start in just a, in a few days. Do you remember the days leading up to the Olympics, Kevin, 2010? What it was like for you? I mean, the butterflies, the feeling, it must, must have been crazy for you. Oh, yeah. All, all three Olympics actually were like that, where, yeah, for the week prior, you're, you're turning yourself inside out. You can't wait to get on the ice. But I'll tell you what, once you touch the ice and you throw a few rocks, you fit in pretty good. But you're right, Jimmy, the few days out from it, hoo-hoo. Those are some uh, stomach-bending times. Uh, we're going to have a lot to talk about, uh, in, including some details about the Olympics and what we're going to be doing. Let's get this baby underway. Don't make any mistakes, okay, Kev? Warren? Okay, let's keep it perfect. You too, Jim. Okay. <laughs> let's roll one out, boys. Last rock. Eighth end. Up by two. I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm white. I don't think you are either. Oh, oh. It's clean. Line's really good. Right on the button, guys. Right Last here. stone for Kevin Martin. They want it on the button. The sweepers are watching it. Fans are on their feet. Kevin Martin goes out as a champion. Cuts him to one. He will win his final Grand Slam, taking the Players' Championship. Talk about putting an exclamation mark at the end of a career. All he had to do was cut him down. Kevin Martin can celebrate. He is a champion. Well, welcome to another episode of Inside Curling. Uh, we want to fully recognize all our sponsors. Thank you very much to Sports Interaction, who brings you what's happening around the curling world. Nestle Boost is the sponsor of Mailbag. Coyote Tractor, uh, they bring you hot rock topics. And Storytime, which we've uh, come to love, is sponsored by Meridian. And our guest segment in the house is brought to you by Goldline. So before we get to uh, tell you what's on the show today, uh, we've got an exciting announcement. Starting on February 2nd, Right through until February 21st, of course, that's the Olympics. During the entire Games, we're going to be bringing you a show of Inside Curling each and every day to keep you on top of everything and what's happening and give you some updates from Beijing. The special series will be known as Daily Draw. Kevin, you and I put names in for this, and none of it got picked. We, we were trying to think of cool names. And they were fantastic names, Jimmy. Yeah, we, we had a really good... Th- Did you outweigh us again, Warren? We're, we keep, we no keep comment. Okay. <laughs> it's going to be called Daily Draw. Not only will you be hearing from uh, Kevin Warren and myself, but we've also lined up a list of terrific guests who will be joining us for a lot of shows. Uh, we'll be giving you a schedule over the next few days of what we have planned. Uh, and for the first half of the shows, we'll be on video. For all of you that might be interested in placing a wager, uh, well, we're going to have also some special information on how you can do that. So stay tuned. Uh, we're really excited about this, and we can't wait to give you the daily updates. On the show today, what's happening around the curling world? The Scotties has been given the green light by the Ontario government, which is fantastic. It gets underway on Friday. Uh, we're going to take a look at what ha- what's happening there. The final qualification round for the 2022 World Women's and Men's Championship was completed this past week in Finland, and we're going to take a look at that. Okay, for Hot Rock Topics, uh, the Olympics is getting closer and closer, of course. Uh, and it, hopefully it's going to be a go that nothing will change. We thought we would take a look at some of the money involved in the Olympics. You know, that's that's a great topic. Who's getting all the cash, where it comes from, and how do the athletes fare in the entire scheme of things? 
Uh, mailbag. Uh, we're going to read a part of an email from a young millennial in Calgary who has some concerns about proper curling instruction being made available. Uh, that'll be good. Our guest is post-media curling writer Ted Wyman, who's on his way over there. Uh, interesting guy, uh, Kevin. He's been covering curling for almost 30 years, uh, but, but doesn't curl very much. Yeah, he's been around a long time, Ted. Yeah, it'd be great to talk to him. Yeah, he fell in love with it, so uh, we're anxious to hear from him. Story time. Interesting experiment done a long time ago with awarding two points for the button and taking away the hammer if you blank an end. Uh, Bill Page wrote us a note suggesting this was done at a Grand Slam event, but Warren's going to straighten us out on that and tell us the story where all of this came from. Okay, Kevin, you're going to kick it off for, uh, kick it off for us. Uh, for what's happening around the curling world, brought to you by Sports Interaction, providing competitive odds on all sports. Sports Interaction is Canada's odds maker, and you got to be 19 to play. So let's look at the Scotties starting Friday in Thunder Bay. Hopefully, keep our fingers crossed. Exactly. Yeah, it's exciting that uh, it looks like the Scotties is going to be allowed to go ahead, which is absolutely fantastic for our sport. Now, there's been some changes. Um, they were going to run the Scotties with 16 teams um, and then have the play-in game. The two top wildcard teams play off in that winner gets into the Scotties. But for whatever reason, there was some political pressure, I think, put on by various provinces and so on. But uh, in the end, they decided to go with 18 teams and three automatic wild cards. So no play in game at all. So that's a big that's a big change. Two pools of nine uh, playing off. So it's kind of interesting. The pool A, you've got New Brunswick, Newfoundland, Northern Ontario, Nunavut, PEI, Saskatchewan. But You've got wild card one, wild card two, and wild card three all in the same pool. And then pool B, you've got Alberta, BC, Canada, Manitoba. Now that's heavy hitters, eh? That's a, that's a lot of power in this just to start off with. Kerry Galusha territories, Nova Scotia, Ontario, Quebec, and the Yukon. So that's, that's your pool B. I want to talk a little bit about the, uh, the way the playoffs work. And actually Warren, Warren and I, we had a chat the other day trying to figure it out and uh, we're barely smart enough to figure it out. So how it works is in the championship, they call it the championship round semifinals. Not actually the semifinal of the event. I'm getting lots of messages from people that are getting confused. I believe it's on the Friday night, the uh, Friday, the semifinal of the championship round, which really what it means is after the round robin, and stop me if I'm getting too confusing, the second place of pool A plays the third place of pool B, Second place of Pool B plays third place of Pool A, and this is the semifinal of the championship round. The winners play the person who won the round robin, so number one in A and number one in B. The winners of those games go into the actual playoffs, into the 1-2 game. The losers of those games go into the 3-4 game, and though that and that's part of a page playoff system. Jimmy? Does that make sense? I'm throwing. I've, you know how many white flags I'm throwing up right now? I surrender. Okay. You know, and I tried to, I wrote it down on paper here. So I tried to make it as simple as possible. I don't know. To me, the playoff structure is too difficult for the average sports fan to understand. I tried to dumb it down as much as I could. And I just confused myself. Uh, I really think they need to clean it up so that the regular sports fans around Canada, not just curling fans, but sports fans in general, tons of people want to know what's going on and who's winning and who's losing. And it's just, it's just really, really confusing. Um, 
but you know it, it, that's that's how it works. So anyway, the top three in each pool are going to make the playoff, uh, not the playoffs, the championship round semifinal final. Uh, the top three, only the top two in each pool make the actual playoffs and into the page playoff system. Okay. Um, and one thing that was kind of interesting is that trying to get into the Scotties and figure out, and this is probably why they expanded 18 teams. When you look at the playdowns across Canada, Alberta, BC, and Manitoba, they actually played their championship, but New Brunswick was canceled. Newfoundland was canceled. Northern Ontario was canceled. The territories was canceled. Uh, none of it, uh, didn't hold their championship. Uh, Ontario, they're going to play it in April, but of course the event's already done by then. So like why they're playing a, an Ontario Scotties provincial in April and it's not a qualifier. I, I don't know. But anyway, they're not, they didn't play to get in. PEI, they canceled. Quebec was canceled. So you've got Saskatchewan and Nova Scotia as well that played. Uh, the Yukon did play a best two out of three between uh, Haley Bernie and uh, Laura uh, Eby, but, uh, and Bernie won, so she's in the event. But anyway, I tried to clean it up as much as I can, you guys, but the Scotties, I am so happy that it's happening. It's fantastic. It's a bit confusing, but uh, we'll just have to make sure everybody really pays attention to, to the line scores and understanding how the playoff system works. Yeah, I want to talk about that playoff situation for a moment. Uh, I think when it comes to stuff, the old KISS principle, keep it simple, stupid, uh, has to apply because what people lose sight of this, uh, the majority of the people that are interested in this stuff are, they're on the fringe. They're not people who are diehard followers, and you've got to keep it uh, to the point. And I, if I look at the Briar as example, for 50 years, the Briar was determined by a round robin, and no one ever was questioning, well, what are they doing now? And then the big move in 1980 went to a three-team playoff. And it was a three-team playoff from 1990, or pardon me, 1980 till 1995. And in 1995, the big move went to a page system. And I can remember I was involved with this and, and we thought that, that was complicated and we had to explain it clearly and make sure everybody always knew exactly what the page system was. The page system was in place for 20 years from 1995 until 2015. That was the method that was used without question, a 12-team playoff, four teams qualified to determine a champion. Since 2015, I think it's changed practically every year with the number of teams, the type of playoff being used. And I guess the message to those who are doing this stuff, if, if we want to keep people involved with this thing, even media, we have to dumb it down. And the, these playoff systems that are being used, World Curling Federation has been doing the same thing. They're just simply way too complicated. Before we leave, uh, so Sports Interaction, our sponsor of this segment, has posted the odds for the Scotties starting on Friday. Uh, so looking at those odds, and we're going to make one lock prediction and one bold prediction. Uh, so let's start with you, Kevin. Well, let's talk about my lock. Um, I just think great deal of Kate Cameron. I think she's fantastic on Laura Walker's team. So my pick is uh, Laura Walker as far as my lock for being strong during Scotties. My, it's not really, I don't think, a long shot, but ranked number 13 according to uh, – Sports interaction is Quebec, uh, Laura St. George's, but I think they're better than that. Like, I would be shocked if they don't get to the championship round, really. I, I think they have an excellent chance. So that's my, if you want to call it, bold pick, kind of a long shot, is Quebec. I really think they're going to be good. Well, I'm going to go in a little different direction. I think the Fleury team has been really strong for this year 
except for the Olympic trials, hiccuped a bit there and didn't do well in the Manitoba playoffs. But they're due to reach the podium, I believe, and, and they certainly would be my my pick is the most likely to be in the number one position. I'm going to make a little variation here. I'm going to have a middle team I'm going to pick as well. And I'm going to suggest a team with a with a shot uh, to some degree, I think, is Mackenzie Zacharias. They're young, but they're fairly experienced. She's had international experience. This is going to be her second Scotties in a row. I like the way they played in Manitoba, so I think they could be in there around the fringe somewhere. My long shot... And I'm looking at experience here, and this is an older team, but man, have they got some experience. And that's BC, Marianne Arsenault. She, of course, I think is playing in her 15 Scotties. She's won four of them. She just uh, competed last week, uh, or pardon me, in December in the Canadian Seniors Championship and came second. And she's got three players on her team. They're also former world champions with Kelly Scott. And although this team is older, I think if they can uh, withstand the rigors of the competition, uh, they could give a lot of people uh, some trouble. Okay. Uh, how come none of you mentioned uh, Emma Miskew? Neither one of you picked her. So I'm picking her. And Flurry. I'll flip-flop them either way. As one, either one can be my lock, and either one can be my bold prediction. Okay, uh, next, the final qualification round for the 2022 World's Men's and World's Women's was concluded uh, last week in Finland. Uh, Warren, what's the whole result of that? All right, so everything is all set to go for the World Women's, which is going to be in Prince George, March 19th to 27th. This past week in Finland, of course, the two final spots were determined, with Denmark and Norway coming out the victors. So in addition to those nations, the 11 other countries will be Canada, Germany, Italy, Japan, Korea, the Russian Federation, Scotland, Sweden, Switzerland, Turkey, and the USA. On the men's side, same thing. Two teams qualified for the men's worlds is going to be scheduled for Las Vegas, April 2nd to 10th. The two teams that made it through last week were Russia and the Netherlands. Watch out for Russia in the men's worlds. And now the other teams that are going to be in Canada, Czech Republic, Denmark, Germany, Italy, Korea, Scotland, Sweden, Switzerland, and the USA. And I think the big thing we're all going to cross our fingers for right now as we move forward, that both those world championships are in fact going to be able to happen. There we go. Thanks very much uh, to Sports Interaction, who brings us what's happening around the curling world every week. Uh, Let's go to the Hot Rock Topics, brought to you by Coyote Tractor, proud partner of Team Brad Jacobs and and the Grand Slam of Curling. Coyote, we dig dirt. Warren, here's the Hot Rock. The Olympics, as we said, is only a few days away. There's a lot of discussion about the staggering amount of dollars that's involved. Where do they come from, Warren, and uh, and where do they go? How do they divvy up all the money bring us up to speed on that and and teach us about that warren how it works all the cash well the major money comes from broadcast rights 75 percent of the ioc's revenue comes from rights nbc owns the usa rights that's the biggest contributor and they own those rights until 2032 and they will be paying a total of 7.75 billion for those rights for that period of time marketing rights bring in 18 percent of their revenue and for 2022, sponsor agreements will bring in a total of $2 billion. The main sponsors are Coke, Procter & Gamble, Visa, Toyota, Airbnb, and Panasonic. A basic four-year sponsorship package is worth $200 million. An additional 9% of their revenue comes from a number of smaller rates agreements in various areas. So where does this money go? 90% of the money goes back into the sports and 10% towards the IOC operations. Now, this money is really involved on the ground for the operation of example, the events in uh, Beijing. That's done by the local organizing committee. 
The money going back into sports, the National Olympic Committees around the world and the International Sport Federation, such as the World Curling Federation, after the 2018 Games, split $430 million evenly. So all the winter sports, that's like the World Curling Federation, split $215 million, as did the Winter Sport International Olympic Committees. In this whole thing, the interesting item is the athletes. And this has been going around and around for years. Remember when the Olympics started in 1924, it was an amateur event, top to bottom. But that's changed a lot in recent times. Between each NOC and the host committee, all athletes' expenses are covered. But it doesn't go much beyond that. Rule 40 of the IOC pretty much makes it against the rules for any athlete to have any type of logo on the uniform or anywhere else that might support a team's individual sponsors. Canadian athletes do recoup some of their benefits through the Canadian Olympic Committee and the World Federation, but the real reward comes if an athlete or team wins a gold medal or possibly any medal that they can maybe turn that into sponsorship and other opportunities. This has been discussed many times, but there's never an indication of anything changing. The Olympics is almost like a form of government that is answerable to no one, and for that reason, probably little will change. A new organization has been formed recently called Global Athlete that is looking to form a better relationship between the athletes and the IOC. This is a relationship that right now is pretty much non-existent. But Kevin, you've been in three Olympics, won a gold, won a silver. What are your thoughts about all this and what are your feelings about the athletes today and where do you think this should go, if anywhere? Yeah, what a great discussion. And uh, thanks, Warren, for bringing up this whole topic. I think it's really important that people understand the the money part from a player standpoint. I, I loved, I just loved being part of the Olympics. I still do from the broadcast side. I just, I just think the world of it. If the athletes are organized and you get on that podium, it can be life-changing financially. Unfortunately, a lot of amateur athletes uh, don't have the, I guess, the people behind them to to be organized. And so a lot of the, the, the winning um, goes without reaping the, the financial benefits that maybe they should. But, you know, I, I don't know if you, if uh, the IOC um, will open up the Pandora's box of, of sponsorship. Probably not. Uh, it's kind of an interesting discussion, though. Is to, should there be like a cash prize for winning a gold? You know, I, I don't know. Uh, when it comes to Olympics, uh, I would have done, like I've said on the show before, I'd crawl through a desert to get there. So, you know, it's just uh, such a huge opportunity to get to uh, compete at the Olympic Games. And I guess that's why things haven't changed because the athletes, like for myself included, I need to do anything to play in the Olympic Games. So I, as long as that continues, I don't think there'd be a lot of change because the athletes just can't wait to go. <laughs> so, you know, from that point of view, but but there are a huge upside if you can manage to get on the podium and, and be organized and ready to go with a marketing uh, company or, or marketing yourself uh, to be able to reap some benefits uh, financially from it. So, Kev, you say you, d- you, you don't know about whether a team should receive cash just for the team. Uh, why, why, what are your reasons back and forth on that, Kev? Well, not really back and forth. So you've got the Canadian Olympic Association and, and there is a great deal of money that goes into curling Canada and athletes are funded through that. So that is through the Olympics actually, but just a different avenue. Um, and then you're talking about athletes wearing sponsorship in the Olympic Games. I don't see that occurring, um, at least not in the near 
in the near course. Um, but having some sort of a price structure, they could, they could, uh, they kind of do by going through the different uh, nations. So it's kind of an interesting scenario, um, as to how the money filters down to the athlete, but more when it comes to the athlete, making sure that they've got their, their house together when they go to the Olympic Games. That's where in 1992, our first Olympics, I didn't even know what was going on. I was just a kid and we weren't prepared at all. In 02, we were pretty prepared if we would have ended up in, in the gold instead of the silver position, but it actually was quite good. 2010, Vancouver, we were completely organized. We had a, the marketing group behind us. We were ready to go if we happened to get to the top of the podium and, and it made a big difference to our team, not just myself, but the whole team with John, Mark and Ben and Dan Jules and, and Adam Enright, we were prepared and uh, to be able to, to get the most benefit possible from our team for not just, not just cash, but also building our brand. I think that's really important for, for athletes to build that brand and it takes time. And if you can stay at the top of the game long enough and be ready when you do have the opportunity to go to the Olympics, it can, it can make a big difference to you. Uh, thanks a lot to uh, Coyote Tractor for uh, bringing our hot rock topics. Uh, we're going to move along right now to our mailbag segment. Uh, are you still just getting one a week, Warren? Or is it a thousand a week with the mailbag? Oh, that's come up a few emails in the last couple of weeks, which is good. I love to hear from people. I'm sure it has. Uh, mailbag is brought to you by uh, Nestle Boost. Up your nutrition game with Boost. Convenient meal replacement drinks with a taste you are guaranteed to love. Uh, today's email is from a young guy in Calgary by the name of Will Penwell. Will's email is quite involved and has two parts uh, to it. So today we're going to deal with the first part. Hi, guys. Uh, Will says, first of all, I love the podcast and I've gotten many friends and family listening. Thank you, Will, for that. Keep up the great work. I've heard a recurring theme in the podcast surrounding TV contracts, viewing curling games, and how to get more people, specifically younger people, involved in the sport. Being an avid curler myself and a fan of the sport, I thought it would uh, interest you to hear a millennial's take. Getting young people involved. Many clubs are now offering learn to curl beginner slash beginner leagues. However, in my opinion, the consistency and quality of curling instruction is definitely lacking. For example, I took the beginner league lessons at the Ottawa Curling Club under Earl Morris, and we spent two months on delivery instruction, sweeping techniques, and skip strategy uh, basics. This was vital and taught us the fundamentals to quickly get proficient at throwing rocks and playing all positions. A student coming out of this instruction was fully capable of succeeding in any club league they joined around Canada. Contrast this to other unnamed clubs where instruction is poor or non-existent. I can see why people are hesitant to try the sport or are simply not sticking with curling after trying it with friends and failing miserably. Should there be a mandatory instruction format for curling in Canada? I know there is the Discover Curling Manual on curlingcanada.ca. However, how many clubs actually teach this way? How do we get more clubs to be successful with attracting young adult beginners like the OCC? Uh, okay, Warren, there's a lot there. Uh, what do you say to all this? First off, I couldn't agree with Will Moore. And I kind of stumbled upon this a couple of years ago. And I go back into time. In the 70s, we developed the Curl Canada program. And this was a very hard-fought battle to develop what this was then the standard for teaching the sport. And we had three levels of instruction. You could become a level one instructor, two, three. It was a Canadian-wide program, and people moved up and down the ranks. Every curling club in Canada, pretty much by the time we hit the late 80s, 
had at least a level one instructor who had received some basic uh, direction as to how to teach, not just an individual person, but I think the big thing is knowing how to teach 25 or 30 people at one time. And and that doesn't work out by going into a curling club and you've got 30 people and you've got uh, half a dozen uh, ends of the sheet involved and and eight people around each hack with one throwing and seven watching. Uh, There's a whole system that can be put in place and special equipment that you require. I did this professionally for over 15 years and we could effectively put 50 people through uh, a course of uh, over two hours a day over four days. So this whole thing has evaporated. I don't know what happened to it. I kind of discovered this by chance uh, a couple of years ago and I have to run across a situation uh, somewhat when I just explained. I'm going like, what's going on? Why aren't they using the system that we developed? And I find out that that Canterwine system, the Curl Canada program that was once there is gone. And I couldn't agree with Will Moore. We need a standard to be developed and we need to have a benchmark that's used by everybody teaching and people have to receive some form of direction as to how to properly teach the sport. Kevin, is poor instruction uh, and and trying to learn this so difficult that we're, we're going to lose curlers or what do you think? Oh, well, curling is such a tough game and but it was great to hear um, Will talk about Earl Morris, Earl the Pearl. Uh, that's John's dad, John Morris's father actually and Earl's uh, an excellent instructor so great that he was brought up in this conversation but Yes, some sort of structured uh, teaching system is very necessary. Um, we've developed that, Warren, actually. I think I've actually showed you some of the documentation through like our academy, the Kevin Martin Curling Academy. And we've went that exact way so that we can grab a group of 24 or 48 or, or 72 people and we have a structured way to teach. But you're right, it's just our, that's a private company doing it. Um, we do need something Canada-wide. When we have uh, in our the academy we have in Edmonton every summer. The reason we have the team when we, they bring the coaches with is that that way we can have the coaches on the ice with us, the entire academy, to try to have them teach their athletes in the same way we're teaching them at the academy. One thing that we was frustrating is you'd have a group of 24 or 48 top curlers from, from across Canada to our academy without their coaches. We send them back home and then by the time we see them again, they're going back to their old ways because the coach is teaching them some interesting <laughs> ways of doing the sport of curling that just don't quite work uh, as well. And it, so that's why we started bringing the coaches into the academy as well. Warren, you sent me a note, okay? One of the famous Gould brothers uh, from Manitoba. I think it's Norm who has a question. <laughs> he said he has a question for Kevin. <laughs> Norm's a beauty. <laughs> the ghoul boys. Norm and Steve. Well, what uh, Norm wants to know, Kevin, he says, um, mixed doubles didn't exist in Kevin's day. If, if it had of, who would he have picked as a female partner or who would have had him? Well, that's easy. That's an easy answer for me. But it did actually exist. I played it in the Continental Cup. Um, oh, right. In, yes. I think it was 2002. The Regina, I played it there and... Uh, uh, it was, I, I just love mixed doubles, but I, I would uh, pick Jennifer Jones in a second to be my partner. Now, would she play with me? That's hard to say, but, <laughs> but, but that's Can you take a no, choose. Jeff? Are you okay to take a no? Oh, I'm okay. Oh yeah. Oh geez. Yeah. I'm okay to take a no, but that, that's a pretty easy pick. But I, I, I love mixed doubles because the way I practiced my whole life was throw the rock and get up and I swept my own rock and all the practices I did by myself for my whole career. So uh, mixed doubles was right up my alley. It just unfortunately, Warren didn't invent it quite in time. I got to play it a couple of times, but that's it. But hey, thanks, Norm. Uh, we go back a long ways, uh, a good friend. So thanks for sending that in, Norm. 
Steve, uh, Warren, uh, Steve never shied away from the mic in the patch. I remember that. Yeah, he used to scare me. No, he's not. He's not shy. <laughs> yeah, he's not shy at all. Uh, thanks a lot to uh, Nestle Boost. Up your nutrition game uh, for sure for bringing you the and bringing us the uh, mailbag segment. Uh, so we announced last week that starting this week, we will read your email on the show, and you will in fact win something. An electronic version of Warren's new book, Sticks and Stones, which is the story of how curling became an Olympic sport, will be sent to you. Congratulations. Uh, we'll be sending you a code shortly. And, of course, this is going to go to Will. Uh, great And great email that he sent us. So uh, congratulations, Will. Coming up shortly, uh, we've got a great guest. Loves curling. He's been writing about it for 30 years. Ted Wyman is going to join us. In the House is our segment for the guest. Uh, it's brought to you by Goldline. Goldline curling equipment can be found in pro shops and curling stores all around the world. Plus, there are retail stores in Calgary, London, Scarborough, Mississauga, and they've got two stores in Ottawa. Goldline can be found at every Grand Slam of curling event and online anytime at goldlinecurling.com. You know, I thought I was uh, passionate about curling. Um, I've always loved it because you can... You can watch someone win the Scotties. You can watch someone win the Briar. You can watch Kevin win the gold at the Olympics in 2010. And then you can go to your club on Friday night and the same people will be there <laughs> having a beer, tossing rocks, uh, playing in your league. Uh, and I've always thought that's absolutely unique. Our guest, uh, like me, doesn't play much curling, uh, but has made it his passion. And uh, I'll tell you what, when you define passion, uh, this guy epitomizes that because he spent almost the last 30 years writing about curling. I'm talking about Ted Wyman. Uh, he's the sports editor of the Winnipeg Sun and national curling writer for Post Media and the author of Ice Gold, Canada's Curling Champions. Uh, he's been covering curling since the early 90s uh, and has covered many of the players that we've come to know. And Ted is on his way to Beijing to cover curling uh, for the 2022 Olympics. Uh, and he's also going to be one of the people we're talking about or going to be talking uh, to through the whole two weeks at the Olympics. And uh, as you'll find out, we've got a bunch of shows coming up. There it is. Ted Wyman, come on in. How are you, Ted? Doing fantastic. So happy to be here with you guys today. Well, well, thanks for uh, being along. You're on your way to Beijing. Break that all down for us. How's it going to work for you? When do you go? How long are you going to be there? What's your role when you're there? Well, so I'm going to, uh, you know, cover the Olympics for Post Media as part of a larger crew. We're knocking wood right now as well because all of us have to get through COVID testing this week. We have to do two tests in Canada and another one in Beijing when we arrive in order to get into the closed loop and even start covering it. And, you know, it's been a really tough couple of weeks here. I got to admit, I mean, some people might not call it tough. I've been hanging out in my apartment and not really doing anything except watching Netflix and writing some Olympic previews. But, you know, it's, it's not easy to stay away from the Omicron virus right now. It's just everywhere, you know. Uh, it's been even difficult to see my own son who, you know, I don't live with him, but but even visiting is tough because he works 
in a public library. So we've been doing a lot of things over FaceTime just because you just got to make sure. It's very much like the curlers and all the other Olympic athletes right now, just trying to stay away from any chance of contracting the virus before we go. And uh, obviously, even worse would be contracting it over there uh, or on the way there. So it's just a, you know, I got to say it's a nervous time, but also very exciting time to have a chance to go over there. And I will primarily be covering curling. You know, I've done that before. I covered it in 2018 in Pyeongchang. I covered it in 2014 in Sochi, where Canada won two gold medals. And it's been among the biggest highlights of my career to be able to do that. And I think with the teams that Canada is sending this time, um, the personalities that Canada is sending this time, it's going to be a real treat to be able to cover that. It's just, you got to cross your fingers to make sure you can even get there and, and do it. And I know the curlers are feeling the exact same way. Yeah. Have they given you any idea, Ted, what the, what the protocols will be for you? Are you in a bubble or do you have to isolate in the hotel? How are you going to write these stories and, uh, and, and get to the venue and all that? Do you have any idea or have they given you any idea of how it's going to work? Absolutely. Yeah. They're calling it a closed loop. So once you arrive in uh, Beijing and once you've tested clean, then you will be put on a bus, which will take you to your hotel. You have to stay there until your test comes in. Um, and once your test comes in and it's negative, then you are able to, I guess, proceed to other locations within the closed loop. But uh, those locations are basically the main press center and the venues and your hotel. That is where you're allowed to be. Obviously, it's going to be very strict. There will be testing every day for media as long with athletes. And, you know, we're just going to have to get used to doing everything under those uh, circumstances. And it's a little different for me, obviously. Uh, you know, when I went to Russia in 2014, I was able to explore the area. You were able to go to various different venues. You could go up to the mountains one day and write about skiing. You could go to pretty much anywhere, but those things are not going to happen this time. It's going to be a very small area of Beijing that we even get to see through the windows of a bus. Let's talk about curling for a moment. And you've been covering it for quite a while. You indicated to us that you've become very passionate about curling and you love to be around curlers. You love the stories that they tell. What is it about curling that you seem to found fascinating and, and why do you love it? Well, it took me longer to love the game than it did to love the people, Warren. You know, I mean, I, I absolutely love the people. I just think curling is filled with great human beings. And as a media person who likes to tell people stories, there is no sport that I've ever been involved with that is more accessible in that way. You know, curlers are just, they're forthcoming people. They like to share their stories. They, they appreciate media, which, I mean, I, I like that. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I want that. You don't always get it the same in other sports. And I cover the NHL as well quite regularly. And, you know, that's night and day. There's just not that same rapport with NHL players as there is with curlers. And, and I guess there's reasons for that. I cover the CFL regularly, and I find that to be a pretty accessible sport as well. But curling just takes it to a new level. And over the years of being in the events and covering it as regularly as I have, I've, you know, just come to love the strategy of the game. I've come to love the and appreciate the shot making. I mean, like I told you, I could get out there and uh, the only shot I could make, I think, is the throw through. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> I, I, I really, uh, I really appreciate the level and the skill that these people play at. And especially when you're watching, you know, covering an event like the Olympic trials, 
in Saskatoon, and you're seeing the incredible pressure of four years of practicing, of training to get to one moment and then having to make these big shots right in that moment and the drama of it just, uh, I, I just love it. I, I, I find it all to be just a, a tremendous sport to be around. And, you know, there's a reason, I think, guys, why are there any other sports in this country, any other amateur sports that have, you know, a full media bench of, uh, of media that come from across the country to cover the entire event from day one until the, the, the last rock is thrown? I don't really think so. And there's a reason for that. And that's because the curlers are accessible, because people in this country like to watch and read and hear about it. And because, you know, the, there's something new to write about every day. I think that's possibly because there's just so many different people that it brings in so many different stories. So obviously, when it comes down to the athletes, the NHL players have had the most media training, then the CFL players the next, and maybe the curlers not so much, I think. Is that maybe the story? <laughs> but, so, so I guess what we really like is people that don't have as much media training. <laughs> right. So obviously, you've been at this for a while. You, you must have a curler that's been your favorite interview. And don't say Kevin Martin. Who, you can who say is Kevin in the curl <laughs> Who is in the curling world that you kind of say, oh boy, I'm going to interview him because or her because I know they're going to say some some good stuff there's a lot but you know i i would have to go to brad gushu all day long uh that guy is just an absolute uh, wealth of uh quotes <laughs> when you when you sit down with him for a half hour you could get five six stories out of it no problem and i've all i really do appreciate his ability to do that i i believe that that's a person who knows what he's doing when it comes to talking to the media, but he's not overly guarded. He's actually very open as well, which I, I really appreciate. And uh, I, I think on the women's side, I really like to talk to Chelsea Carey. She's very honest, uh, very straightforward, very blunt. You might get told off for your line of questioning, but you certainly are going to get an honest answer. Well, you know, I'd like to just kind of jump back to the Olympics again on site um, and the mix zone. It can be a crazy place. And that's where, for everybody listening, when the players come off, the media can't just walk out onto the ice surface. The players come into an area, a holding area, and there's lots of people. Um, how, how, or do you know how it's going to, the mix zone is going to exist? How close to the athletes are you going to be allowed to get? Is it sort of the old hockey stick microphone at the end of the hockey stick distance? Or, or how is the setup? Because uh, that's a place where I, I wondered right away how, how the mix zone is going to be set up. Yeah, I'm, I got to tell you, I'm kind of wondering myself, Kevin, I'm not 100% sure. I was not in Tokyo. I was actually supposed to go to Tokyo to cover the Summer Olympics. I had tickets twice uh, for tr air travel, but both times it got canceled. The one time the entire event got canceled, and the second time our company just decided to send less people. Um, so I don't have an understanding of how it worked there, but I have been told by some of my colleagues who who were there that it was uh you know it was a, a modified version of the mix zone that you would normally see and as you know kevin certainly in 2018 you'd get into that mix zone and there's a lot of people in there i was once in a mix zone at the summer olympics in rio where we were trying to i was assigned to do a story on simone biles and she's uh you know the famous gymnast she's about four foot seven and there's about uh 200 people trying to get their mic in there to talk to her well <laughs> i'm pretty sure that's not going to be happening at these olympics <laughs> yeah if you remember back to 2010 uh ted i think it was around 2800 accredited media in the curling area uh, after our gold medal game so when you start talking about those kinds of numbers 
Uh, I, yeah, the logistical part of trying to keep people far enough apart to not not have a huge spread and, and how, who whose turn is it to interview first? You know what I mean? Because the athlete comes through the mix zone, but it's important to get to that athlete because of emotional and the stress and all the things that you really want to have involved in an interview. But of course, if, if, if it's a four mile long mix zone to keep everybody separate, it could be interesting. Well, I'm sure it will be, you know, different from that. But as you remember from 2018, uh, the, the number of curling media at the 2018 Olympics certainly wasn't at the level of the of the 2010 Olympics, uh, being at home and, and being curling and being that you guys were so successful. That obviously brought a lot more media into that. It, it wasn't a huge crush of media in 2018, I wouldn't say. It gets bigger when Canada is doing well, because obviously in Sochi in 2014, uh, I was sitting on that media bench every day and no one really around me at arm's length. And then come the weekend when Jones and Jacobs were heading towards, uh, you know, gold medals, all of a sudden pretty much every Canadian journalist <laughs> in Sochi was, had arrived and was asking, uh, you know, a few of them were asking uh, some questions about how this curling thing works. But um, <laughs> it, it's definitely different. And I don't think that it's going to be that, you know, I know of a few Canadian media that are going over, but I, I can't say how heavily it's going to be covered internationally this time around. Tell me this, uh, Ted, we've, we've been talking about this over the last couple of weeks leading up to the Olympics. And um, one of the issues, of course, is if a team member gets COVID, well, then you can go to your fifth. Uh, and then we said, well, what if two guys get COVID on a team or three uh, on the same team? For example, if there's two, can they go to a three-man team? Are they allowed to do that? Or, or does it wipe out their chances and they got to forfeit all their draws? Uh, do you have any idea about that, if it happened? Well, I wish I could say that I had asked that question, but I haven't. I don't know for sure on the, on the three, but as you guys know, in most situations in curling, you can play with three if you need to. I would think in this situation, when it's a pandemic and, and so much is, uh, you know, there's such a risk out there of, contracting the virus that you would be able to play with three um, and you can certainly bring in your your alternate but if obviously if three people on a team get it then you're going to be talking about forfeits and that's the one thing that absolutely nobody wants to see you know my my gut feeling is if this closed loop works and every single person who goes into the closed loop has been tested three times before they even get into the closed loop and they're being tested every day in theory you're not going to have Omicron in that closed loop and things are going to be able to operate normally and these teams are going to be able to to make things happen. I mean, that's the reason why the testing is so heavy. Could it still happen? Obviously, yes. You know, we saw what happened with the World Junior Hockey Championship, but that wasn't a hard bubble. That was a pretty soft bubble and and clearly that didn't work as the event ended up getting cancelled in the middle of it. Yeah, I think uh, we got the Scotties happening in Thunder Bay starting this weekend as well. And I think they're probably going to be crossing your fingers and, and hopefully that things work out there as well. But uh, let's talk about that event for a moment. It's going to be kind of a, a different year with regard to who's in it and who isn't. Who do you like going into the Scotties as the front runners? Boy, I, you know, it's amazing when you look at the, the seating, it's the three wildcard teams that are right at the top of the seating. Um, and that's a, that's an interesting one right there. I, I thought Tracy Fleury's team was just absolutely fantastic in the Olympic trials until 
the very end of the game and the very last game. And they unfortunately even had a chance to win it on their last rock and weren't able to. And then that really deflated them. They, they really bombed out of the Manitoba provincials early and Mackenzie Zacharias ended up winning that. And, uh, and that kind of makes you wonder if there's a little burnout from, from what they were going through to try to get to that point to qualify for the Olympics. But Tracy Fleury's got the number one team in the world. So I certainly think they're going to have a very good chance of being successful there again and in Thunder Bay. And I mean, it's hard to argue against Kerry Anderson as well, because Kerry Anderson has won this championship two years in a row, very well versed in, in bubble life, uh, went through it all last year more than once in the bubble for her and, and got to know it. Now, she did tell me that she had COVID recently uh, within a couple of weeks. Uh, so you never know. There's sometimes where these things have lasting effects. So hopefully that's not the case with her. But, you know, I think Carrie Anderson's team has proven the last couple of years that they are one of the very best in the world. And I would not bet against them in this event. In, and without Rachel Holman there, that's a bit of a wild card. Her team is there. Emma Miskew is skipping and she's a fine player herself. But I don't know. They've been in the final the last three years and lost it every time. Can they actually get back to that final one more time? I'm not so sure. It's going to be, you know, it's a really good field there. There's no doubt when you add these three teams, it, it gets excellent. And I, I like a dark horse, and that would be Laura Walker. I think her team's been coming up and up and up. They didn't have a great Olympic trials, but they were very good in the Scotties last year, made it to the, you know, semifinal. And I think they really are a team that is going to probably win this thing one of these years might be this year let's talk about the uh, scotty brower format with the three wild cards uh, just a little bit i just want to touch on that and get your idea and your thoughts ted about uh, bringing in the wild cards because it's it, it's it seems to me that it i'm not sure it sounded like it was supposed to be a 16 team event but then ended up just expanding the wild cards instead of the play-in game between the two wild cards just inviting three i'm just kind of wondering if behind your eyes if you see it being sort of a well, it'll solve a lot of problems if we make it three wild cards. That way we don't have that big uh, uh, incident with uh, Holly Duncan and uh, getting in and, and uh, Team Holman not because Rachel went to the Olympics. And oh boy, it was kind of a messy thing there for, for a week or so or 10 days. Your thoughts on that, Ted? Well, it seemed a bit contrived, Kevin. I agree with you. And I, and I think that the biggest issue, the Holly Duncan thing, was just looking like it was going to be a disaster. And obviously, I think Curling Ontario put pressure on Curling Canada with their decision to say that they were going to send Rachel Holman unless she was not there, and then they were going to send Holly Duncan instead. Um, but the biggest issue, of course, was that there were some provinces playing provincial championships and others that were not because of the pandemic. And you had teams gaining CTRS points that moved them higher up in the standings playing in their provincials, whereas other teams actually had no opportunity to gain those points. And that was the that was the thing that really didn't work because they probably should have just suspended the points, but they didn't. They hadn't made that decision, so they had to continue on with it. And um, and so I, I know that the easiest thing for them to do was to look at it and go, okay, well, if we add three teams and we just go straight with that, then that alleviates that problem, that disparity. They had originally said they were going back to the original wildcard format, which would have been a play-in game. Tracy Fleury certainly would have been in that game. But the number two team would have been up in the air because Chelsea Carey actually passed both Holly Duncan and Rachel Holman 
in CTRS points by playing in her provincial in Saskatchewan and making it to the final. So it could have been a, an ugly mess. You know, there's a been there's been a lot of changing on the fly for curling Canada in the last year. Not everybody likes it. I can tell you, I've had people say that they didn't understand why this one was going to an 18 team format again, um, and that they felt like it could have been alleviated earlier. But again, there's been more decisions made at the bureaucratic level in curling Canada in the last year than there have been games decided on the ice, I think. So what what, what would be your favorite format then, Ted? You've been around a long time. You've, you just mentioned four or five different options that, that they've used and looked at. What do you like? Oh, boy, guys. Uh, we're going to go down a rabbit hole there. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to commit yourself. <laughs> Welcome to the show. I think we've talked about it before, and I, I do listen to your podcast, and I have heard you guys talk about it before. But, you know, I mean, I, I did a, a big feature last year um, talking to numerous curlers uh, about the format of the Briar and Scotties, and um, I'm of two minds on it. I understand where it comes from as to what they want to keep here uh, in terms of the traditions and all that, but I do also believe and, and, and I thought Matt Dunstone had some really good points in the story that I did that, he, you know, in his belief, it, it kind of hinders a lot of the younger curling teams coming up when you have such a limited ability to get into that big of an event because you've got this disparity across the country of where the good teams are placed. I mean, Manitoba now has, you know, I think how many teams in the Scotties this year? Three Jennifer Jones would be there also if she was uh, not going to the Olympics. So you'd have four. They've got five top ranks. Right. Yeah. And 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 so Mackenzie Zacharias is now in, and that's amazing because she's only 22 years old. She's a great up-and-comer. But would she have won Manitoba if uh, Jennifer Jones and Carrie Anderson were playing? Probably not. And would she have been uh, had enough CTRS points? Very hard to say. So it's a really, really difficult situation, I think, in terms of the development of curlers in this country because if you can't have an end goal if you can't see a light at the end of the tunnel that's going to allow you to get into those top championships and have an ability to compete at the best level then a lot of people just tend to fade away or they you know the best players of a team will join another team and the rest of them will just go on to go to university and go on with their lives and i think that there's a lot of truth in the fact that if you had kind of a two-tiered system where the very elite curlers are playing at one spot and the next level of curlers have a great opportunity to play perhaps a national championship and maybe out of that qualify a couple of teams to move up into that next level, I think you might actually benefit this game more from the grassroots level on up because it's a concern to know how much fewer curlers are actually starting out at a young age because they're not seeing that opportunity to go and, and get to this level. I mean, nothing against our Olympic curlers whatsoever. They're great curlers. They've been great for a long time. But you've got 47-year-old Jennifer Jones, 42-year-old or 43-year-old John Morris, and 41-year-old Brad Gushu going to the Olympics this year. You know, that's a ton of years being put in to get to that point for them and all, all good for them. But that's also an, a daunting look if you're a young curler going, how long is it going to take me to get to that level? Uh, Ted, this has been great. Um, uh, before you go, you've been covering curling since the 90s. Is covering the sport still the same well into the 2020s now that we're into? And 
What's been the biggest significant thing that you've seen in curling over the last 30 years? You know, the changes in the free guard zone obviously have made the game so different and so much more exciting. Um, uh, you know, I, it, it really is, it's, it's just become such a great sport. And I know, you know, Kevin, I actually went, was at, was it 91? Was that the Worlds in Winnipeg? I think it was. It was. Um, yeah, yeah. So it might have been one of the first curling events I ever attended, to be honest. I started in the media the next year, not even being a curling guy, but, you know, learned to love it from that point on. But you think back to then and, and before the free guard zone, I mean, we're talking about just a completely, completely different game without the excitement and the strategy and the, and the, the amazing uh, shot making that you get right now. And then each year or, or, or in increments here, they've kind of looked at it and said, here's ways to make this game better. I appreciate that about curling. It's that introspectiveness that you have at all levels where they say, look, this game is good, but it could be better. And the curlers offer their opinions on that and it grows. And I think that's one of the things that I like so much about it. And I think what they've done is they've created a better game. But, you know, I do respect that about curling as a sport that has grown so much just in the 30 years that I've been involved. Ted, uh, thanks very much. This has been great. We really look forward to your coverage. Are you, are you telling me over all the years, uh, Ted, uh, wouldn't you be nervous uh, interviewing Kevin? Did he ever short answer you? or ever ever? <laughs> did you ever piss him off or anything? Cause... <laughs> well, there was uh, the Olympic trials in 98. I don't know. He wasn't too happy after that one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Ted, look after yourself. Stay safe, and uh, we're, we're going to talk to you. Uh, during the Olympics when you're over there, and we really look forward to it. And thanks a lot for uh, joining us this morning. I look forward to it as well, and thanks so much for having me, guys. Great show. Hey, thanks, Ted. Thanks, Ted. Good luck. Okay, pull up a chair, Kevin. Storytime is brought to you by Meridian Manufacturing, your industrial and on-farm storage and handling partners and a proud sponsor of the Grand Slam of Curling. This week, we got an email from Bill Page, who thought there was a slam event at one point that awarded a team two points if a stone covered the pin on the button, and if you blanked an end, you lost the hammer. Well, Bill, it was done, but it wasn't at a slam event. Uh, Warren, you're going to take us through this, give us the backstory uh, of when and where this all happened. Well, Bill, it was a long time ago, and as we communicated, you were around then, <laughs> the first Super Leagues were up and running in the fall of 76, and they had two new, very exciting rules. If you covered the pin, it was worth two points, and if you blanked an edge, you would lose the hammer. A Western Canada Championship was actually held for the first time in 1977 that was originally supposed to be the winners of the various Super Leagues, but when Carling O'Keefe Brewery became the sponsor, the event got changed into a championship involving three teams from every province in Western Canada playing as a unit. The event was called a Super Draw or Super Show Draw, and the first event was played in Saskatoon in February of 1977. The event was played a second time in 78, this time in Regina, but following the second event, the Carling Grove Brewery backed away as a sponsor, and the event disappeared as quickly as it started. The association started to come apart a couple of years later when Terry Bronstein left as the president, and as a result, this rule never really got any traction. It was brought to the CCA's attention back in those days. It was kind of looked at, but uh, never was considered to be adopted. 
So it was an interesting experience, experiment. Maybe it should be tried again. But uh, that's where it came from, Bill. And I don't think in talking to Kevin, there has been any other event that's done this uh, since that time, as far as I know. Do you, Kevin? I don't know. Remember, Warren, there was a, an event called the Curling International that uh, Ed Lukowicz was part of with a fellow by the name of Merv Bodnerchuk about around, you know, two, uh, 1994, 95, 96, somewhere in there. Curling International. And they had some interesting rules. So it, it could have been there um, because I, I did play in one of the Curling International events, but I simply can't remember. So anybody that's listening today, send us emails. Let us know uh, if you can remember the Curling International rules and if it was too for the button. I just, I simply don't remember. Well, what we do learn from this, Kevin, is if you think you know a fact about curling, you got to get it by Warren Hansen first, okay? And <laughs> <you're> gonna... <laughs> if you can surprise Warren with something, I'll tell you what, you win an award for sure. Uh, well done, Warren. Uh, great, great story. Uh, story time is brought to you by Meridian. Uh, boys, uh, that's a wrap on another show. Um, God, lots of good stuff there. Getting closer and closer to the Olympics. Again, we're going to let you know uh, closer to the games how we're going to roll out a bunch of shows for you. We're going to do it every day. Uh, Inside Curling is reaching out also to curling clubs all over the world and inviting you to contact us and ask to set up a Zoom call with myself, Kevin, and Warren to discuss anything you like. That was a good one we did this week, boys, with uh, Curling Club in Texas. Who, who would have thought, Warren? That was pretty good. Yeah, it was uh, very interesting, and a suggestion was made to us this week that we need to look into, and there was a proposal put to me that we should start taping those uh, sessions we do with the curling clubs and put it up as a special podcast, so that's something we might think about. We'd also like to extend a big thank you to Rod Paulson and his company, In-House Strategies, for all the great work they're doing uh, with Facebook and and on our Facebook page and, of course, our Facebook group. If you don't belong to the Facebook group, we invite you to join. During the last couple of weeks, we have signed up another 500 people, roughly. Uh, so it's growing exponentially. Uh, if you're one of them, thank you very much for joining. And if you still aren't a member, we look forward to you signing up and joining in on the conversation. Uh, you want to get a hold of us, we'd love to hear from you. Insidecurling at gmail.com is our email. Uh, Warren, your book, you've launched it. It's out there. We're starting to give it away. Sticks and stones. Yes. So as announced last week, if we read your email on the show, we will forward a code to you for an ebook. And also starting on January 31st, the new member who puts up a post on our Facebook group that gets the most comments will also be awarded an ebook every week. So we look forward to hearing from you on emails and in our Facebook group. And uh, we will be awarding the winners each week uh, on the show. Kevin, uh, your, your next trip, you're, you're traveling all over the place. You go to Connecticut shortly, Kev? Tell what what's your travel schedule like? Well, it's kind of interesting. Yes, this time uh, we won't be in, we're, we're in the building in Pyeongchang for the 2018 Olympics, working with NBC, of course. Uh, this time, though, we're not in Beijing. We're going to be in uh, Stamford, Connecticut at NBC Studios, the sports studios, uh, for the entire Olympics. And uh, it's just a great crew that we have and uh, really looking forward to it. I, I travel at the end of this week get into Connecticut and then get ready for uh, working during the night <laughs> because, of course, it's pretty much reverse time from, from Beijing. Uh, great show, boys. That was a lot there for sure. And uh, we thank everyone for, for listening and telling everybody about the show. Uh, we love doing it. And yet we got this great thing coming up for the Olympics. So thank you very much, Kev. Thank you very much, uh, Warren. Uh, great job again. And uh, we will talk to everyone next time on Inside Crew. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks, Jim.